So let's pray together. Father, come before you in the name of Jesus, and I do thank you uh, for this group of people that are here, for those that will uh, join us over the internet, either now or later. I pray that you'll open up your word to us. There's a reason that we're here. Um, there's a, a message you have for each of us. I pray your Holy Spirit will descend in this room and beyond, and you will speak the truth of your word to each person as she or he needs it. And uh, you've heard these requests that were offered up here uh, for this young man that's struggling with drugs and uh, for this breast cancer surgery that's coming up and uh, for this man who, who needs that, that uh, his uh, breastbone to be put back together and for probably many other requests. I know that there's a number of folks uh, in our midst right now that are in need of a home, in need of a job, and I just pray that you will give them a hope and a future I pray that you will give them opportunities. I pray you'll give them breaks. I pray you'll show them your favor. Uh, I pray each and every one of them will pay attention to you as you lead them throughout the day so that you keep them safe, keep them free of danger, and uh, just supply all their needs according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's take a look at this. Um, this is the English Standard Version that it should have been what, that, what I put up there if I did the deal right. But I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, uh, which is a more literal translation of Scripture. So, um, you know, we come from different backgrounds as far as the Bible's concerned. Uh, the Bible's not written in English, right? You can go all the way back to the King James Version. The King James Version, great, beautiful translation, but it's a translation. It's a translation from Greek and Hebrew. The New Testament is in uh, Greek and the Old Testament is in Hebrew. A little tiny bit of it is in Aramaic. So we rely on translators. And the beauty is some people get upset because there's so many translations. It's actually a good thing to look at multiple translations because it's gonna give you a little better insight into what that original language actually says, right? So it's kind of annoying when you've memorized it in a certain translation and you read another one, you're like, what? Okay, because the wording is not exactly the same. But I'm just saying that to you in the event that you're used to King James or the New Living Translation, there's two complete ends of the spectrum right there as far as understandability. But we're gonna try to get back to what that language says. Now I'm sitting here and I'm looking at this and I've got the Greek over here in my right column. Now I don't read Greek as fluently as I read English, but I can read it and I can pay attention to it. And so, but that's not uh, something that everybody has the ability to do. I went to school for a long time to do that. and. Um, so what we want to do when we don't have that tool, that ability, and I don't have a good enough ability to just sit down with my Greek New Testament and just spin through it. I have to have the, the Greek and the English sit next to each other, but I recognize enough to be able to say some things and do some things here. So, um, And then I have a tool here. Uh, this Logos Bible software that I have is, is magnificent. It's going to give me all sorts of other opportunities to share with you. You might not want to get into that deal that uh, uh, much depth, but nonetheless, it's, it's available to us. All right. So let's get into this. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Amen. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. 
Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, that's as far I think I'm going to go tonight, but I'm going to continue reading. Uh, I'm going to read down to verse 11. It continues in verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of grace, the God of all grace, excuse me, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then there's some final greetings there, but I won't read those tonight. Um, so it is likely that we will finish this next week, but we'll just see how far we get through here. Um, so let's start off here. Verse 1, he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. So what's an elder? Elder in a church. Well, if you think about it, this comes from uh, initially the church was set up under the same rubric or the same organizational structure as the old synagogue, which was set up under the same organizational structure as the, 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 the tribes, the clans, and the families. And they always had elders. Well, you know, when you think of an elder, you think of somebody that's older, right? Elder, older. Well, they were. They were the older men in those particular groups that were recognized that were respected, who had the ability to lead. And so that goes all the way back in the Old Testament in Israelite history. So when the Apostle Paul started preaching the gospel and setting up churches all over the known world, uh, there was that recognized ideal of elders who are leaders even in the Gentile world. And so every time he set up a church, even though they would be new believers in Jesus, he would put elders in place and they would be the ones responsible for the decision-making uh, in the church. Let me give you some, uh, some idea of, of what, what, what's going on here with uh, Peter calling himself an elder. Now, it's interesting because Peter wasn't in just one church. Um, he was responsible as an apostle over multiple churches. So he'd be somebody who would be in you know, a particular church for a period of time, move to another church for a period of time. And so the apostles were the ones that set up the churches. But the first 12 apostles were a unique group of, of, of men who were set apart to be the witnesses of the resurrection who would share that testimony to everybody. So Jesus you know, chose those men and he trained those men for three and a half years. And then, of course, one of them betrayed him. So in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus has been crucified, buried, resurrected, and shown himself to the uh, apostles and the rest of the disciples as well that were still there, uh, after that, uh, Jesus gives them the charge. He says, uh, and you, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. That was their charge. Now we take on that charge as followers of Jesus today. We're not apostles, but apostolos means sent. And we're sent into the world to be witnesses to what Jesus has done in each of our lives in what my old preacher used to call the daily traffic patterns of your life. So you're gonna walk around, you're gonna encounter people all over the place, 
right? You come in contact with. Some will be peers, they're, you know, your age. Some will be in situation like yours. Um, some will be different than you. Some will be younger, some will be older. But you're just responsible to shine your light and share the good news about Jesus, right? So that means you've got to have something going on in you. You can't share a false story, right? These apostles had actually seen the resurrection. They believed in Jesus. They followed Jesus. And they were sharing not just their own subjective experience with God, that is kind of the inside, but they were sharing something very objective and very real, and that is Jesus really did die on the cross. That's an objective historical reality. Jesus was actually buried in a new tomb. And three days later, that tomb was empty. And the very first Sunday night after that, he appeared to his apostles that he had chosen with, of course, Judas notoriously absent because he had hanged himself because he'd betrayed Jesus. And that first Sunday, Thomas was absent because he was just so depressed and just didn't believe. Well, he continued to show himself to them. Uh, the scripture says in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, the resurrection chapter, that uh, over 500 men at one point in time saw the Lord Jesus. And we don't know how many women. The women were the first ones to see Jesus. They were the first ones to, to, uh, to witness his resurrection. But as the story continued to be told, sadly, ladies, in the first century, the testimony of a woman wasn't even acceptable in court. This is why we can, in great measure, put our reliance on the New Testament because if they were trying to fake the New Testament, they certainly wouldn't have said that it was women that saw Jesus the first time out of the tomb. Not because they didn't like women, but because women's testimony was, it wasn't trusted. But it's solidly there in the scripture. No, women were the first ones to see Jesus raised from the dead. But as the, the, the story continued to get passed on, they wanted to make sure that these that did not trust the testimony of women, when they passed it on, were passing something along that people would listen to. So they said over 500 men saw Jesus at once. Why do I mention that? Because there were probably a lot of women that saw Jesus during that time period as well. So there were a lot of people that saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. And this, this gets spread around. But these initial 12 were the ones that were given this responsibility, this, this commission from Jesus to share about the resurrection. So um, I think it's interesting that Peter calls himself a fellow, a fellow elder, even though that's not his office in the church. Now, if you go to Ephesians chapter four, you'll see these offices in the church, right? There's apostle, there's prophet, there's evangelist, and then it depends on whether you put them together or take them apart. There's pastor and teacher, or it's one office, pastor, teacher. Well, since pastors are one of our uh, qualifications, according to the Apostle Paul in uh, 1 Timothy, is that, that uh, we should be able to teach, then there are many interpreters that think that's just, that's a pastor, teacher, right? That that's an office within the church. But again, as I said, um, Peter has an office that is over churches, plural. And so as the result, it's interesting that he refers to himself as a fellow elder. And that's going to tell us something about this idea of elder, that it's not just an office in the church, that it still represents a recognized um, person who is responsible and who has been called to leadership. Well, certainly that's the case um, with Peter. He says, a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. 
Well, this, I think, alludes to the fact that he was one of those first 12 apostles. And as such, he's a witness. He actually witnessed. And in 2 Peter, we see, he, said, he says in 2 Peter, we didn't follow cleverly devised tales. We're not following myths and made up stories here. We were eyewitnesses to the Lord. We saw him. And that's important for us, right? Christianity is not based on stories. Yeah, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, stuff going around today about story. Well, we just tell each other stories and, you know, uh, those stories help us to navigate life and, you know, they have meaning to each of us personally, your truth, my truth. No, this is history. This happened. This occurred. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, what are we doing sitting here? Well, the air conditioning's nice, so, but, you know, I might as well have brought some food in or something, okay? But Jesus rose from the dead. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. What does that mean? That's from the resurrection chapter as well. That means you're gonna die. I hope not soon, but you and I are all gonna die. Because of Jesus, if we allow the, the spirit of Christ to come into us, we put our faith in Jesus, then he's the first fruit, right? That means that much fruit is gonna follow. That's you and I as we put our faith in Jesus and we're gonna follow in that resurrection. But this is interesting. Um, we can see that the task of these apostles was to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus in Acts chapter one. I wanna read verses 21 and 22. So one of the men who have accompanied us, this is Peter talking by the way. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So they chose one of those men. It's kind of interesting. We have certain human ways of choosing leaders, but it turns out that the real 12th apostle was the apostle Paul. And he didn't come along until sometime later when he was standing there holding the coats of the men that stoned Stephen to death, and he had to be accosted by the spirit of Jesus on the road to Damascus where he was gonna arrest more Christians. And, you know, he was wrong, and he recognized that he was wrong, and he chose to put his faith in Jesus, and he worked harder than any of them, including Peter. Um, so anyway, that's all interesting, but I, I find this continuity really, uh, really good for us because, um, this helps us to see that this is indeed a letter that was written by the same Peter that we, uh, that we hear speaking these words in Acts chapter one, all right? So, as I said, I think the concept of an elder transcends the office in the church. Elders led Old Testament tribes and villages. Listen to this from the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible. The elder or the institution of elders is closely linked with the tribal system. Tribes were composed of clans and clans of large extended family units. By virtue of age and function in a patriarchal society, that means a society that's, that's focused on fathers, the father of a family ruled. This uh, fact of age, as well as the wisdom and maturity invested in older persons, is undoubtedly the origin of the authority that these elders exercised. A clan was ruled by the heads of the families constituting it forming a council of elders. Now that's interesting because these churches had groups of elders that made the decisions. Same thing, right? Um, initially, those elders were chosen by the apostles. So the apostle Paul 
preach the gospel, people would respond to the gospel, he would set up a local church. And that's why we can say the church as though it's a universal church, but it only expresses itself in local individual bodies, right? Your church in Fort Worth, right? There's four or five churches right around us here, right? This church as it expresses itself here in, in this room. So the church is not just this invisible body everywhere. That is the case. There are, there are believers in Jesus that constitute the called out from the world, but it always expresses itself in local bodies. So that's why it's good that you're here tonight, right? And for those that can't gather because of health reasons and you've got a flight from work or whatever, it's good that you can kind of try to gather with us uh, online because that's what the church is. The church is ekklesia, comes from two Greek words, ek, which means out, and kaleo. Well, that sounds like an English word, kaleo, call. It means the called out, right? So there's a call that's gone out, and these are the people that heard the call and came in. So I've invited most of you at one time or another to, you know, to come to church. You listen to the call, and here you are sitting here right now, right? So you know, I reminded Miss Annette earlier today. I said, you know what, well, we're going to have to. Yeah, she, thank you, Pastor, right? So she responded to the call to come into this meeting. But we respond to a greater call to follow Jesus. But listen, we're not doing that alone. We're to gather together. We're to meet together. We're to encourage one another. And we're to admonish one another. This, he says, I exhort you. So there's some encouragement in that, but there's also admonition in that. Now, if you haven't used that word admonition before, it means that um, you're correcting people. You're not just you know, telling them how sweet they are and wonderful they are and nice they are and trying not to chase them off from church. You're trying to be honest with them and correcting them. That's really hard to do in church today. People don't like correction. They like to be encouraged, but they don't like correction. But this is Peter. He, and he identifies, by the way, so the last verse, uh, or second to the last verse, third to the last verse, verse 17 of chapter four says, it is, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So what Peter is in fact saying here is that it begins with us leaders. Right? The Lord's going to judge us. He's going he's to keep his eye on us. He's going to admonish. The Lord's going to admonish us. And so what I tell you, I'm even more accountable for. So I often, without even really thinking about it, go back over the, the message that I've preached on any given Sunday morning several times throughout the day, maybe even in the, into the next day uh, or beyond, because it's something that I have to pay attention to. I can't just tell you to do something and then walk off and live my own life my own way. I am very responsible. Uh, James said in James chapter three, uh, let not many of you become teachers for we shall incur a stricter judgment. So I gotta watch my P's and Q's. I gotta pay attention to what I'm preaching to you. I gotta be the first example. Well, if you remember Peter's story, um, he didn't betray Jesus, but he did deny Jesus. Right now, betrayal is this, you know, lower level, horrible thing. Now, believe it or not, Judas could have been forgiven. Jesus could have forgiven Judas. He didn't repent. He had remorse, but remorse is not the same as repentance. Remorse is I feel bad about that. Okay, 
Well, we can feel guilty about doing something, but that doesn't make us uh, necessarily repent. It doesn't make us change our mind and want to do something any differently. Well, um, the difference between Peter and Judas is Judas had remorse, and we know that that didn't result in repentance because he went out and hanged himself. Peter, in the heat of the moment, denied that he knew Jesus three times. And then we, you know, we have the record, Jesus predicted it was going to happen. He said, before the, cro the cock crows twice, before the rooster crows, crows twice, you will deny that you know me three times. That's exactly what happened. And in fact, we have in one of the synoptic gospels that uh, Jesus caught his eye. I think I want to say it's Luke, um, that Jesus caught his eye. And Peter went out and wept. So he felt bad too, but he repented and Jesus forgave him and Jesus restored him. So now here he is talking about being a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He doesn't focus on being a witness of the resurrection here. He starts with the sufferings of Christ because he's saying, I'm, I'm suffering right along with you. I'm suffering right alongside you. I'm not escaping all of this just because I got chosen to be an apostle, right? I witnessed the sufferings of Jesus. In fact, he knew that he had denied Jesus in the midst of those sufferings. So that's pretty powerful, right? Um, but he doesn't stop there. We never stop at the crucifixion, right? Now, I don't have a big beef with crucifixes, right? Um, I know coming out of Catholicism, some people just you know, don't like that because uh, perhaps it's, it, well, certainly I guess it has been overplayed or overdone. Uh, there's a lack of focus on the resurrection and there's an excessive amount of focus on the crucifixion. There's the belief in the sacrifice of the mass, which means in the Catholic Church, they believe that every time they celebrate the mass, which is their worship service essentially, that Jesus is crucified all over again. The scripture comes up against that clearly, right? Jesus died once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, right? That was in this very letter of 1 Peter. We were, we were in that just a few weeks ago. He died once for all. He doesn't die again and again and again. Now, it should be observed that my sin and yours makes that necessary again and again, and we certainly need to be willing to uh, understand that um, it's very, very important for us to allow the conviction of Christ to keep us from getting back into sin. But Jesus isn't crucified again and again. He rose. So we don't just focus on Good Friday. We focus on Easter Sunday. The reason that churches, most of them, worship on Sunday is because of the resurrection. Jesus rose on the third day. So the day of worship for the Jewish people was Saturday, the Sabbath. But Christians started worshiping on Sunday because the resurrection trumps even the Sabbath. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't observe a Sabbath. You can observe it on Sunday. You can observe it on Saturday. That's all that. People get into that and, and into too many arguments about that, all right? In fact, Jesus got into a lot of arguments with the Pharisees about that, uh, that very subject. But what we do is we choose to put our faith in the resurrected Christ. That's very, very important. And so that's why he doesn't just say that he witnessed the sufferings of Christ. He says he's a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Now, you know what? He got a taste of that on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John went up the mountain, and they saw Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So there was a taste of that glory even before they understood the gospel. They understood that Jesus was going to be crucified and going to uh, be raised. See, the Jewish people believed there would be a resurrection at the end of time, right? You live, you die, you await judgment, and then there's a resurrection. And those who were considered worthy 
right? Enter the kingdom of God. Those that are not are, you know, well, the Jewish people didn't have a, any clear picture of hell, honestly. If you look in the Old Testament, there's just, there's no clear picture of hell, right? Um, so they're, you know, they're destroyed. They're put at a distance from God. They're not in the presence of God. That's enough suffering for me. Just to live, you know, any piece of, of life in eternity with no hope and no love and no life, that, that, that's horrible. You know, it's, it's important for us to get ourselves straight with the Lord today, right? Okay, then he says, um, he says, I exhort you, right? I, I, I'm, I'm encouraging you, I'm compelling you, I'm impelling you, I'm admonishing you. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, right? So he, he says he's a fellow elder and a partaker of the glory, but the, the, the command is right here. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That's where we get our word pastor. Pastor's a shepherd. David was a shepherd. He was the greatest king in Israel's history. But he was a very, very humble man. And as a matter of fact, uh, when he first started out, um, David didn't even get to show up at the party that was being thrown to choose the next king. He was out taking care of the sheep. And Samuel went to each one of the, the young men that was there and he saw this young man and he said, oh, surely the next king is standing in front of me right now. Look at this specimen of a man right here. And the Holy Spirit just spoke to the prophet and said, nope, that's not the one. Next, next uh, son down, all right? Next one of Jesse's sons. This was Jesse was the name of David's father. He said, oh, that's got to be the Lord's anointing. Nope, nope, nope. And so the Lord spoke, however the Lord speaks to prophets, he spoke to Samuel, don't look at his outward appearance. That's what humans do. But the Lord looks at the heart. So he went through all of those sons and he said, are these all your sons? Because he knew the Lord had led him to Jesse's house to choose the next king. And he said, oh yeah, well, there's one more. I mean, he's, he's the, the youngest. He's out there caring for the sheep. You know, I'm, I can almost hear him say, well, there's the runt. He's out there caring for the sheep. Yeah, we didn't bother to bring him in. He's the baby. As soon as that man walked in the door, that young man, he was probably a teenager at that point in time. The Lord spoke to Samuel. That's the one anoint him. God just doesn't choose things the way you and I choose things. I mean, he's just got a different set of, uh, uh, he's got a different criterion. If you heard my word on Sunday, all right. Um, but that's a, that's a humble position. Shepherds were not well-liked. So we can see when um, Joseph, the, uh, the second youngest son of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, which is why the nation is called Israel, right? So there were 12 sons of Israel. Joseph and Benjamin were the two that were born last to Rachel. And Joseph had all these dreams and these dreams, in these dreams, in every dream, his brothers, and in one of them, even his father and mother, were bowing down to him. Well, he wasn't terribly humble about sharing this. He would go and tell his brothers. That's, that's a real good way to, to rub your siblings the wrong way, right? I, I had another dream. He said, there was my sheaf. Now, a sheaf is a bundle of, of you know, wheat. He said, there was my sheaf, and all your, and all your sheaves were bowing down to mine. Like, what are you talking? And then he said, ah, I had another dream. He said, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And even his father, he was his father's favorite, made him a special coat and everything, right? Um, the, the, the many colored coat of Jacob, right? Even his father said, 
Are, I, it's interesting, this whole family knows how to interpret dreams, right? Because mm -hmm. even his father said, do you really think that even your father, that even I and your mother are going to be bowing down to you? You know, but he kept it in mind. Well, long story short, his brothers, several of them wanted to kill him. One of them wanted to save him and came up there to, hey, no, 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 just, just throw him down in this, this cistern. A cistern, they didn't have like water running below the ground like you see in many parts of the world and the country even. The, the water that they got came from the rain and the water that they had after rains was held in these basically holes in the ground that were plastered over. That's a cistern. They take the lid off during the rain so that the rain would fall down in there and they close the, the lid on it so it wouldn't evaporate when the rain was there. And they just go to the cistern and they would dip it out. And then of course, if they lived near a source of water, they could use that as well. But that was water uh, in Israel. So it was very dependent upon the rain. So there were these cisterns everywhere, basically big holes in the ground. They threw him down in one of those. And then they went and ate. Well, Reuben, the eldest, was going to try to get him, pull him up out of that cistern so that he could save his life. Well, Reuben went off somewhere doing something with the sheep, and the other brothers are sitting there eating, and they see a group of Midianite traders going by, right? These are basically Arabs, all right, in the, in the desert at the time. And they said, you know what? Let's not kill our brother. We'll just sell him. So they drag him up out of this, this well. He's the, he's the youngest again, just like David was the youngest. This is many years before David. They drag him up out of the well. They jerk his coat off of him. Later, we hear the brothers share that he cried out to them and begged them not to do this. It breaks my heart. This story, if you just once over it, uh, you're not getting the depth of it. This is depraved, right? Sure, he's a big mouth, arrogant kid. He's getting these dreams, but he's getting these dreams from God. Now, he would have been wise to keep them to himself, but a lack of wisdom doesn't mean you could, you know, should be sold as a slave. Now, his brothers are culpable for this. That means they're guilty for this, but God still had a purpose. Remember that when bad things happen to you. Because at the end, and I'm about to remind you of the end in just a minute, Joseph ended up being second in command in all of Egypt. And his brothers came to him, and you know what? Sure enough, they bowed down to him several times because he was so powerful at that point in time. But he forgave them. And then when their father died, they were scared he was gonna have them put to death. And he said, no, you meant it to me for evil. God meant it to me for good. Now, people are still responsible for their actions. Somebody does you wrong, they're still responsible for it. But you need to trust God's providence and know that he's got a purpose behind what you're going through. He's got a purpose behind your suffering. Now, I mention all that, even though that's not directly in this text, because First Peter is about suffering. That's why I've titled these Bible studies, This is a Test. This whole thing is about suffering. And all of us are going through various degrees of suffering, various degrees of intensity in that suffering, right? But God's got a purpose. Just understand where you're at right now and what you're going through right now. Whether it's, it's, it's very, very difficult, you're at a crossroads in your life, you don't know what to do, or whether it's just kind of minor irritants that don't ever go away, or confusion in your life that you just don't know what to do about, God has a purpose for it. That's not saying he caused it, but he's gonna take it and he's gonna work it out for your good and for his glory. Same verse I quote over and over again, quoted on Sunday, um, Romans 8, 28. And I like the New American Standard Bible, how it renders this. God causes 
all things to work together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you've gone through and what you're worried about coming up from the past, whatever, God, if you will pay attention to him, if you love him and follow his purpose, his primary purpose for you is to make you like Jesus. Jesus was the suffering servant. People that just go through life on beds of ease, you know, oh, I'm blessed, everything's perfect in my life. That's not necessarily a blessing. Some people, sometimes what that means is they're just distracted by all these blessings, which are just material things. You know, a lot of times the devil will give people what they want just to keep them distracted, right? So if you're going through it, don't give up. Cling to the Lord. Follow Jesus and know he's shaping you. He's molding you. He's making you into the person he wants you to be. So he says, shepherd the flock. So here's what I want you to understand. Um, I'm not going to go into as great a depth as I was originally going to go into about church offices. Um, I wrote down, I didn't write down, I copied uh, what our church says and does about elders and pastors and so forth uh, from our constitution and our bylaws so you would see how uh, this works out in our church. I may not have time to get to that. But I'm just going to say this. Um, elders and pastors are not two different offices. Pastors shepherd the flock. He's saying, elders among you shepherd the flock. So listen, you got a church that's got an elder board that's like a board of directors, and they don't really do anything except tell the pastor what to do. That's not a biblical model. Now, sometimes churches call that a deacon board, right? Which is interesting because that's definitely not a biblical model. Deacons are more like administrators. They're the servants. Deacons, that office was brought into the church because there were, um, there were resources in the church that were not being properly distributed. There were, there were widows that were being overlooked. And the apostle said, well, we can't, we can't stop teaching the word of God so we can go out there and serve tables. Not because they thought serving tables was less important but because they knew their role. Know your role, stay in your lane. It's important. That's why we gotta have different people doing different stuff. Do, do what the Lord's led you to do, right? It's, there's no small jobs. Just because somebody stands up in front of everybody and gets their attention, that's not more important than what the Lord may lead you to do. There's just not one more or less, we're part of the body of Christ, okay? Now just think of your own body, you know, the Apostle Paul said that the parts of our body that we treat with more modesty are actually not less important, but more important, right? So let's think of something, you know, amazingly small. Have you ever stubbed a toe? Isn't it amazing that that can just make your whole body miserable? Have you ever, ever had an, a hangnail? I have never seen anything like, or, or a, an ingrown toenail. I used to get those all the time. And I, it's miserable. Like, it'll just rule your life. You're just walking around. Oh, oh, it's just a little tiny toenail on your toe. And it's irritating your whole body. There's not one, you know, less important or more important. Um, you know, this is, this is why I know, I, I know someone in our church that has had toes removed, right? And I know that as the result of that, you have to learn balance again. Right? Everything requires you to make adjustments. So there's not a less and more important part of the body. We're all a part of the body of Christ and we're all important. So shepherds, right? 
And then it says, um, exercising oversight. So there's, there's two verbs here, shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight. Well, interestingly, uh, presbyteroi, there's your, your elders, okay? Um, presbyters, the reason why I give you that, that Greek term there. But the, the word here that is used for exercising oversight is episkopos. The Episcopal Church, why is it called the Episcopal Church? That's the American expression of the Anglican Church in England. It's based upon their church, their form of church government, which is a bishop-directed church, all right? Episcopos in Greek is translated bishop in English. Now, when we think of a bishop, we think of you know, somebody with maybe a high hat or something, or we think of somebody that's, that's you know, in charge of a lot of different churches and so forth. And that's because in the Catholic Church, in the Methodist Church, in the Episcopal Church, um, you have priests, right? You have parish uh, priests that are responsible for the local congregation that would be the equivalent of, in most churches, what we call a pastor. And then you have a bishop, which is responsible for multiple churches. And in churches, for instance, like the Methodist Church, the bishop just moves these pastors around. I've had several friends that are Methodist pastors here, and they're not around anymore because they just get moved around. They're just like, they're gone now. <laughs> they moved them to another church. The, the church doesn't have anything to say about it, as in the people. It's like, oh, by the way, we're going to remove the guy that you've been looking up to for this many years, and we're going to put him over here, and we're going to bring somebody else in. Okay. That's the way they do it. I'm not trying to disparage them. I'm simply helping you to understand. But from a biblical perspective, elders, pastors, bishops, same office. So here's how we do it in our church. We have a group of deacons, but we call them ministers. And I meet with them. I was meeting with them on Zoom regularly until recently. Um, and they have responsibilities over various areas in our church to watch over that particular area. Uh, in fact, Lige is our minister of technology. That wouldn't have been an, uh, a responsibility in an ancient church, right? But it, boy, in churches like now, it's important, okay? Um, we have uh, Dean is our, our minister of, of musical worship. He's the lead guitar player up there. The guy usually wears a hat now. Um, Different folks in our church have these different responsibilities. But they don't meet as a board and tell me what to do, right? What happens is God calls and appoints pastors or bishops or elders. Call it any name you want to call it. And if this church were larger, we'd have to have more. But for our purposes, we have two. We have me and we have Craig. And we make the decisions in our church. And when the decisions are larger decisions, we bring it before the body. Don't just make monolithic decisions and say, oh, by the way, we're moving out of this building next weekend. <laughs> okay, well, I've been you know, tithing to this church for years and I just would like to have known a little bit about it, been able to pray about it and so forth. No, we believe in a congregational form of government because we've come up in a time, as in a time period, uh, and in a country where we vote Right? We're used to voting for things. So, but we don't run our church like a corporation, which is what you see with some churches. You have a board, deacon board, presbytery, elder board, whatever, and they hire a pastor, they hire staff, and then they, they give them direction and say, now you go out and do the work. 
That's not what we do, right? If you're going to be the decision maker, you're going to be the worker, right? So I need to be the best example. I need to be the one that's willing to serve in whatever area. Doesn't matter if it's cleaning toilets, if it's putting these chairs out or putting these chairs up. It doesn't matter if it's taking out trash. Doesn't matter what it is. Doesn't mean it's not my job or it is my job. It means I need to be willing to do whatever. And I do a lot of the technology up there. So what I'm trying to say is there's exampleship here. It's not, hey, I'm gonna rule the church and we're gonna see this in a minute. Uh, he's, he's gonna talk about that. Um, there is a willingness to do what the Lord leads you to do and be a servant leader, right? Jesus said very clearly, he said that the Gentiles lord it over each other when they have leadership. And I see some churches where the pastor's treated like a king. And they even got like a big chair up there. It looks like he's sitting in a throne. You know, I'm thinking, I don't really fit in your church. You know? So he says, do this, shepherd the flock, exercising oversight, not under compulsion. Now, some people are just natural leaders and they get volunteered for certain responsibilities. Now here, you're a leader, lead us. That's under compulsion. So this person's like, sure, okay, fine. Ugh, not what I wanna do, no. But willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain. You got preachers that are in it for the money. I wouldn't be in this church if I was in it for the money. It's, it's interesting to me that periodically I get, these, I get these posts about, you know, some pastor of some big church. A lot of times it's Joel Osteen because he's got a mega church in Houston and he's very well, well known. And they're like, well, look at how much money he makes and blah, blah, blah. We need to do this and we need to do that. We need to take away these, you know, pastors can have a housing allowance. We need to take that away. We need to start taxing the church or whatever. I'm like, uh, you know, can I? Yeah, for just a minute. 99.99% of churches are not like that. They don't have all that money. Most churches are this size. You see the ones that are bigger. I got saved because a big church had a big outreach. That's how I heard the gospel. North Phoenix Baptist Church had a building that was so big, you could climb uh, uh, one of the, the local mountains like Camelback Mountain. All right, I don't know if you know anything about Phoenix, but it's called the Valley of the Sun, right? Um, there's another mountain there. It used to be called Squaw Peak. Now they changed it. I think Squaw Peak was like not politically correct. So now it's a name that I can't even pronounce. And I don't remember, I haven't lived in Phoenix for years. But you climb the top of Squaw Peak and you can see North Phoenix Baptist Church. It looks like a spaceship that landed out there. It's a huge church. Pastor Jackson was on television. That's how I heard the gospel. Praise God for big churches, right? But most churches are not that size. So, you know, it's not fair to judge every pastor, every, you know, person that's in ministry on the basis of a few notable people, even uh, staff people and pastors and elders and so forth in large churches may not make that much money, right? So you can't just judge everybody the same way. But there are those that are in ministry because they wanna make money. You gotta be ready for that. Here's how I, I, I find this. My grandma, uh, my grandma Jewel, was uh, constantly talking to us about Jesus. She would write stuff in letters and so forth. And she subscribed me to a bunch of magazines when I was, when, when I was younger, all right? 
Uh, she was Assembly of God, so they were Assembly of God magazines. I, I knew about CFNI before I even knew anything about Dallas or Fort Worth or anything, uh, Christ for the Nations Institute down there, because I used to get all kinds of stuff from them, right? And she had all these other folks that, uh, you know, she would send stuff. For. But what I noticed was, and I'm not beefing on, on assemblies. This could be any denomination, non-denomination, whatever. What I noticed about a lot of these was that they would spend a majority of their time trying to get you to donate money. So when the preacher comes on and gives you a message for about 10 minutes and then for the other, you know, 20 minutes, if it's half an hour or for the other 50 minutes of an hour, you know, it's like, hey, I'm going to sell you this and I'm going to give you this and here's some holy water and, you know, here's some face cloths and, you know, here's some Bibles and here's a study Bible and here's this. And if you donate this much and this much and this much, money, 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 money. We got to have the money. We can't stay on the air. I'm thinking maybe you don't need to be on the air. I mean, the Lord's kept us in this building. We, we lost some notable donors back in 2012, and I didn't think we were going to be able to stay in this building. And I went to the landlords and I said, I, you know, I'm really sorry. We're going to have to figure something out. We're going to have to, at the very least, we're going to have to get rid of the top up there where we have our kids and our youth and try to figure it out down here because we're just not going to be able to do it. And they worked with us and worked with us. The Lord has just continued to work with us. So that was 2012. This is 2020 and we're still here. The Lord's going to provide. If the Lord calls you, the Lord's going to provide for you. Right? So here we are. Uh, it's not about the money. Then he says, not domineering over those in your charge. Well, you know, there are those who come out of church environments and it's almost like it was an abusive thing for them. It was harmful for them. Um, there, there are church leaders that are, you know, they're over the top, domineering, my way or the highway types of folks. And that can be part and parcel of strong personalities. And that's what Jesus comes in to, to push out, right? So that I'm not just trying to get my way all the time. Um, so we have to be careful of that. But anybody in a position of leadership has to be careful of that. We're to be examples to the flock. I've already said that to you guys several times here. And then he says, verse four, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's the reward I'm looking forward to. Not a paycheck, not a retirement, but the unfading crown of glory. Now, we'll get away from uh, those of us in my position and let's talk about Felix. Um, well, we'll see, you'll see why in just a minute. Likewise, you who are younger. Ah, oh, Felix and Autumn. I'm looking at the young people in the room. All the rest of us are all, oh, no, Adrian, you're pretty young, man. Yep. That's right. Felix, Autumn, and Adrian, this is your verse. <laughs> Be subject to the elders. Quit talking back. <laughs> Then he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, not just the younger people, all of you with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's powerful. That's just a really, really big thing with Jesus, okay? He's, he's very strong on the, uh, the inversion of, of normal human values. We look up to the strong. We look up to the talented. We look up to the beautiful. And Jesus just inverts those values, right? Um, 
the disciples argued over who was the greatest. This is like on the road to Jerusalem. Jesus is getting ready to go through all the suffering he's going to go through. And they're arguing over who among them is the greatest. James and John's mommy came and talked to Jesus and asked him if he would put one of her sons on his right and one on his left in his glory. Seriously? These people were glory hounds, man. I mean, we think of the, the apostles and we think of these, you know, martyrs and we think of these just amazing uh, saints. They didn't start off that way. None of us do. We all got our, our, our warts. We've all got our wounds. And we have to let the Lord heal those, uh, those wounds and cut off those warts, right? So listen to this from Matthew 18, 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean, but like children? The, the next verse, next phrase in this verse will say it, but I want to stop there. So some people think, like children, oh, they're so innocent. Have you ever been around children? Oh, yeah. I, some of the times when I experienced the meanest treatment from anybody was when I was a kid from other kids. Yep. They're not perfect, right? Now, they're innocent of a lot of experiences that later, you know, come crashing down on them and so forth. But, you know, kids are just not all sweet and, you know, um, without faults. They have plenty of faults, right. right? But here's what he means. Next phrase. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, not all children are naturally humble the way you and I would think of humility when it concerns how they treat each other. But when you're talking about a younger child in the presence of an adult, there's a natural humility there because they're like less than half your size, right? You can like lift them up with your wrist or something, okay? They know to be careful around adults. They know that adults, that you know, their, their mom, their dad, or their caregivers, other adults or teachers, they know they're completely dependent on those adults. They can't do it themselves. Now, we know that we're all full of pride because if you've taken care of little kids, what are the two first words you often hear out of their mouths, or certainly two words you hear out of their mouths very often? No, no and mine. No and mine. There it is. <laughs> she's, she's, she's got a couple of them right now and running around her house. She knows. Right? But the reality is you can, you can correct a child. And they'll, I, I mean, I've seen these, uh, these, these they, they call them memes, these pictures with words below. But people taking pictures of their toddlers throwing fits and saying why the toddler was throwing a fit. And it's always something just totally hysterically outrageous. And, you know, I mean, as an adult, you just look at that and you think, what is wrong with you, child? You know? But the kid throws a fit and then they have to come around. They just don't really have another choice. The point is, you know, I've got this room last night was full of kids. So I'm not a children's minister, but I've taught um, karate to kids for over 30 years. So I've got this room full of these kids. 
Now, I'm quite sure they don't all want to do what they're supposed to do all the time, but they do show humility, right? Now, I've got this little boy that before the, the COVID shutdown, I mean, he was just fit and energetic and whatever. And I'm telling you, man, I, people don't understand the way we're handling this is not the best way to handle this. You look at some of these kids and adults as well and what it is doing to them, right? And this kid is just a lot of times listless and doesn't have energy and his mom or his grandma brings him. And, you know, there's been like, I don't know, three or four weeks ago, he just sat out there in the lobby. He wouldn't even come in, you know? But see, eventually he comes around. I had him sitting in the front row over here the other week. The idea behind this is not that we look at children as being our perfect role models, but that we realize that we are children and God is Father, and we need to be humble before Him. It's very, very important for us to recognize that, okay? Um, okay, then he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So when you think you gotta knock somebody down a couple of notches because they're being cocky, that's not your job. Because there's plenty of people out there that are, you know, they're cocky. And you know, there's people that just have that face, it's that hit me face, you know what I'm saying? You've seen that face. It's like, you just want to hit that face. They're just so cocky. Why are you so cocky? You know, but that's not my job. That's not your job. God says, I will take them down a notch or two. You just let them go through what they got to go through, right? You just, best thing to do is you get somebody like that, let them just sweep on by. I, this is a story I got to tell myself over and over again. So, I've got braces. I, it took me until I'm, you know, halfway through my 50s to get braces. And uh, my orthodontist is clear up in Dallas, so I got to drive through all this traffic. Now, some of you got to drive through all this traffic every day, all the time. Fortunately, you know, I, my, my realm is right here in the Garland area, and so my, my traffic is, is not so extensive. Now, I drove for Uber and Lyft a few years ago and had to deal with it. But I just have those problems with people who cut you off, right? Is that's arrogant. That is a lack of consideration. It irritates me. It makes me want to go right around them and cut them back off, right? Yep. You know, knock them down a few notches. That's, no, the best thing to do, and I'm telling myself, I don't know any of you and your driving habits, but I'm just telling myself, the best thing to do is just back off and let them go. They're going to get theirs. They're going to get pulled over. They're going to get a ticket. They're going to get in a wreck, right? Your best bet is just to pray that they don't end up causing some major problem for somebody, right? But there are plenty of cocky people out there. Look, God opposes the proud. Now, you and I are sometimes those cocky people, right? Now, I know, I know Christy, you work in customer service and have for, uh, for a long time, and I've been one of those people that has been the whiner and the complainer, um, and I got to, you know, have things go my way and so forth. And yeah, you, you, you just don't get good customer service that way. It's better to be kind and courteous. By the way, it's really important to be kind and courteous to cops. And some cops can be unbelievably overbearing. So, we got two bullet holes, or I think they're pellet guns because I haven't found any bullets up there, in our windows up there. I got a guy coming up tomorrow that's got to do some more measuring and I don't know when they're going to order the windows and they're going to put them in. So, I got a call the the non-emergency the police non-emergency line. So police non-emergency line. I call the line. Oh, at first I call and, and, and I talk to a lady and I tell her what's going on. And she was courteous. 
And she said, I, I, need, to, I need to put you over to, a, to one of our officers over here on the desk, right? So then I was, I mean, I, I sat there on hold for 20 minutes. I mean, just sitting there, waiting for him to come on, just waiting for him to come on, waiting for him to come on, all right? Um, this is in a city where the police are fully funded. Consider Austin just cut $150 million from their budget. Defund the police. These cities that are doing that are going to pay the price. Businesses are going to move out. People are going to suffer. People are going to get hurt. This is bad, right? But this officer comes on, and it's obvious that he's just not having a great day. Because I'm being as courteous as I can be, and he's just being rude. Just being outright rude. And my temptation was to say, you know, you're being kind of rude. No, don't ever say that to a cop. This is, this is foolish, right? But it's this kind of treatment in spades that is causing people to be so negative toward the police. Now, contrast that. The detective that has looked at the end of this case was the kindest, most courteous guy in the world. Just unbelievably nice guy. It doesn't matter which kind of officer you get you need to be unbelievably polite and courteous. It is really, really unwise on your part to bow up on a police officer. It's just not smart. Uh, the last time I got pulled over was about six months ago. I didn't even know why. You ever been pulled over and you didn't know why? So the first thing I wanna do when they walk up to the window is say, why did you pull me over? I have learned that that is foolish. <laughs> Smile, hand them your license and your insurance, let them tell you at their own, in their own sweet time, what they're gonna tell you. So this guy was, he said, you went flying around that car over there. I mean, he was hot. And I didn't understand why he was so mad at me. I didn't do anything. And I said, yes, sir. And I didn't, I said, I just don't remember doing that, but I'm sure you're right. And he just kind of, Bumped down a few notches, and he wasn't quite so upset. He said, all right, well, here, drive safe. And he walked off. Like, whew, no ticket for something I didn't know that I did. That's awesome, right? But I'm, I'm going to rely on the Lord, okay? You don't have to give, get payback. So the scripture says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Be kind to your enemies, and it will be as pouring hot coals upon his head. What happens when you pour hot coals on somebody's head? Think about it. What are you going to do? If you get hot coals poured on your head, what are you going to do? You're going to bow. Get those coals off your head. You don't have to do anything but be kind. Be sweet, be kind, be courteous, be agreeable. If they're, if they're in the wrong, their time's coming. If they're doing something that is absolutely wrong, then you wait until you have the right time. Memorize that badge number. Don't say a word. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to report you. I'm gonna, no, you don't do any of that. You just be real quiet. Smile at them, nod, be agreeable, memorize the badge number. And later, if there was something really wrong and bad, really harmful going on with you, you can deal with it, right? Yep. You can report it. You can get a lawyer. You can do all that. But the worst thing you can do is say, I'm going to get a lawyer and take you to court. Mm -mm 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 -mm. Right? So here's the scripture. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. You be humble and God will be on your side. 
whoever's in a position of authority and power, doesn't matter what their position is, if they're abusing that, then eventually they're going to get their comeuppance and God's going to make sure of it, okay? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and at the proper time, he may exalt you. So God's going to reward your faithfulness. You may not feel like it right now, but if you choose to humble yourself, right? I'm not talking about being humiliated. I'm talking about you choosing to humble yourself. Then God promises that he will exalt you. He's going to reward your faithfulness. He, God sees what other people are not seeing in you right now. They don't see it in you. They don't understand you. They're not rewarding you. God sees it. And he'll reward you at the proper time. Now, honestly, sometimes I think, Lord, your proper time is kind of long here. But, you know, he knows what the proper time is. I'm going to conclude with this last little part of the verse. Casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I memorized it. Casting your cares upon him because he cares for you. That's a little phrase you can remember. Casting your, care, your cares, your worries, your anxieties on him for he cares for you. Say he cares for me. Now cast your cares on him. You've got a lot of cares. You've got a lot of worries. You've got a lot of things on your heart and on your mind right now. He says, you throw those on me. Right? I'm a big God. I got big shoulders. I got a big chest for you to cry on. I'm here for you. This is uh, also in the Old Testament in Psalm 55, 22. Cast all your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. That means he'll hold you up. He will never let the righteous be shaken. Wow. So what has you worried tonight? You know what I say? Warriors make great prayer warriors. Amen. Because if you worry and you just keep talking about it, oh, this and all that, it doesn't, worrying doesn't change anything. But if every time you worry, and you might be a worrier, you just turn it into a prayer, man, you become an incredible prayer warrior. You're worried about this or that person. You're worried, instead of worrying, just turn it into prayer. Say, Lord, I'm worried about this. Just tell him. And say, Lord, I need you to intervene. I need you to step in. I need you to do something about this. And just keep pouring it out, pouring it out. Ask and seek and knock and ask and seek and knock. And don't let him go. I like this. I saw it as a, this is a bumper sticker, and I don't normally quote bumper stickers, but <laughs> I saw this on the back of a church van one time. It said, push, P-U-S-H, push. And then below that, it said, pray until something happens. Amen. Amen. Just storm the gates of heaven and keep praying until something happens. Put it on God. Say, Lord, I know you're good. I know you're faithful. I don't feel it right now, but I am putting all this on you. I'm pouring it out on you. I'm asking you to give me direction. Now, be obedient when he tells you to do something. You pray and all this and the Lord leads you to do something and he'll often lead you through people that try to teach you, admonish you, encourage you, whatever. And if you just say, no, I ain't going to do that. Well, then the Lord's like, well, I, I tried to help you. Um, be anxious for nothing but in everything with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Cast all your cares upon him. Don't be anxious for anything. 
but just keep on praying. And you know what? You're going to get a peace that just goes beyond understanding. It doesn't make sense in your circumstances. And I've quoted this several times. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. That's Isaiah 26.3. This is good stuff. Now just remember, the Lord's going to speak. The Lord's going to send people to help you, but it might not be in the way that you would like. So I'll end with a story. It was a, a fellow that was in one of these floods, right? You name whichever flood. It could have been Katrina, one of these floods like this, right? And uh, so he started, when the flood started, he started praying. He started crying out to the Lord. The water came up and came into his house, come through his front door, and a boat came by. They said, come on, get in, get in. The flood's rising. He said, no, I prayed to the Lord. I prayed to the Lord. The Lord's going to save me. Okay. They sped off. Water keeps rising. Now he's standing on his roof. Helicopter comes by, drops a rope down. Come on, come on. You need to get up. Just grab that rope, put it under your arms. We'll pull you up. He says, no, 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 no. I've prayed to the Lord that he will come and save me. Helicopter flies off. Man drowns. Man dies. Stands before God. He says, God, I prayed and prayed and prayed to you. I asked you. I begged you to help me. And he said, well, I sent you a boat and a helicopter. What else did you want me to do? <laughs> you don't know what God's trying to do for you. Might not be the way you think it should look, but he wants to help you. All right? All right. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you, Pastor. Yes, ma'am.